Welcome to the Servants of Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. Our podcast exists to provide trustworthy expository messages through the Bible and faithful answers to your theology questions. Now for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, guys. Well, welcome back to the Servants of Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I am the host for this show. And today, we're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms, looking today at Psalm 8 and our God, our glory. Would you please join me now in prayer? Lord, we thank you that your word is true, and that because it's true, Lord, and you are a God who never lies. You have spoken clearly, and you have spoken definitively in and through and and by your word to your people, to the creation that you've made in the 66 books that constitute the word of God. And so, Lord, we, we thank you that you have revealed yourself, that, that we are not left at, without the knowledge of the truth about who you are, about who we are, made in your image and likeness. And Lord, most importantly today, as we're going to discover in our text today, that you are a glorious God. And so, Lord, help fill our minds to to understand more of your glory from your word. And Lord, may may our response be not just to worship you in some part of our life, but in all of our lives, because we are always before your face. We are in your presence. And so, Lord, may our lives reflect the truth of your word, and may we repent where we dishonor you. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. And we pray now for the illumination of your Holy Spirit that you would help us to know the truth and to walk in the knowledge of the truth. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Psalm 8. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a Psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes. Distill the enemy and the avenger. And when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. All the sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What a... What a great psalm that we have before us today, and what a needed word that this psalm 
has to teach us, to instruct us, to help us, to have a God-word perspective. It would be difficult to say anything negative about any one of the Psalms since it's all part of Scripture. It is, and all Scripture is inspired by God, and it is without error and without the possibility of error, and it's binding on our lives. It's clear, and it is for every phase and every part of our lives. Every Psalm in the Psalter has been of great spiritual benefit, no doubt, to millions and millions of people who have read them over the years. And yet we cannot escape the feeling that some have a little more prominence and stand out than others. This is true, no doubt, of Psalm 23, that beloved psalm in the Psalter. It's true of the first psalm that we've already considered before, and Psalm 19, which we will consider in Psalm 51, Psalm 100, and on and on. And it's also true of Psalm 8, which we come to today. C.S. Lewis called Psalm 8 a short, exquisite lyric. Derek Kidner, in his excellent two-volume study of the psalm, says this, The psalm is unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory of and grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he's done, and relating us to end our world to him, all with a masterly economy of words and in a spirit mingled with joy and awe. And he adds, Derek does, the range of thought takes us not only above the heavens and back to the beginning, but as the New Testament points out, to the very end. And so the, the Psalms theme is the greatness of God and the place of man in the universe. And the hymn has four movements in verses 1 through 2, we'll see the celebration of the surpassing majesty of God. In verses 3 through 4, we'll see the confession of the insignificance of man. In verses 5 through 8, we'll see the astonishment of the significance of man. And in verse 9, we'll finally see a concluding refrain that repeats the psalm this first line. Let's consider Jehovah our Adonai. In fact, one of the with the most striking themes of this psalm, its dominant theme, if you count verses, is description of man and his place in the created order. But the psalm, <coughs> we need to say, does not begin where we do in our Western culture with ourselves, placing ourselves at the center of the universe. Instead, instead, this psalm, this place is at where it belongs with God. In fact, a surpassing majesty of God. In this place is men and women <coughs> within a specific cosmic framework. And so it's a way of saying from the outset that we will never understand human beings unless we see them as God's creatures and recognize that they have special responsibilities to their creator. And one responsibility to praise God, which is what David does. Indeed, he does it grandly, beginning the psalm <coughs> with two great names for God. Jehovah, which is Yahweh and Adonai Lord. Literally, our Jehovah, our Adonai. In the later ages of Israel's history, the Jewish people consider the name Jehovah to be so sacred that they would not pronounce it. And so when they came to it in their reading of the Old Testament, for here, example, they would say Adonai instead. In fact, when the Masoretes came in time to provide the vow pointing 
to the continental Hebrew text, they, they wrote the vowels for Adonai whenever the name Jehovah occurred as a reminder of, of what should be said. And so when he read the verse, the pious Jew would say, Our Adonai, our Adonai, meaning Lord, Lord. And But there is none of this beleaguered piety here with David. Jehovah is his God, and so he begins with that name. He maintains that Jehovah is so majestic and his glory so great that the latter is above the heavens. And this means as David's son Solomon would say later in his great prayer at the dedication of his temple in 1 Kings 8.27, the heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you, how much less this temple that I have built. You see, the creation, as wonderful as it is, it cannot exhaust the glory of God. The glory of God is that because God is the maker of creation. And so although creation expresses his glory, it reveals his existence, his, his wisdom, his great power, as well as his other attributes, it's only a partial revelation of the surpassing greater glory of God who stands behind it. If God has set his glory above the heavens, it's certain that nothing under the heavens can praise him adequately. You see, this is how majestic God is. And we also need to say God exists outside of our time and outside of our space. We are finite creatures. We, we cannot even begin to scratch the surface of all that God is. Our minds cannot even begin to understand God. And, and, but here's the thing to also come back and say, God has revealed himself in the 66 books that constitute the word of God. 39 in the Old Testament, 29 in the New. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us this, that, that God has kept things to himself. The secret things belong to the Lord, Moses says. But what God has chosen to reveal to us is enough. He's revealed his infinity. He's revealed his eternality. He's revealed his omniscience, his omnipotence, his, all of his attributes. He's revealed all of these things in the word of God. <coughs> so we can know God. But what, what this understanding helps us to do is that it helps us to see ourselves as we really are. We are in desperate need of God. The God who created us, the God who sustains our world, the God who, who governs and upholds the cosmos by the word of his power, we are in need of this God. We are in need of the rescue of God. We're in need of the, the power of God to make this world inhabitable. We're in need of, uh, of the help of God in his provision. We, we are dependent creatures. We are dependent on our God. And understanding this helps us to see ourselves rightly. We are living in a time, make no mistake about it, we are living in a time, friends, in Western culture, where our Western culture would love for us, more than anything, to reject everything that I just said. 
Just elevate yourself. The, the, the whole entire, our whole entire secular media is, is driven by that ideology. The elevation of self, the worship of self, the exaltation of self. You, you see it on social media, on promotions. You see it in trailers. You see it in movies. It's, it's all around us. But what we need more than anything is God. And this is why it's so important that we are reminded that God has revealed himself. And he's revealed himself specifically in the 66 books of, his, of the word of God. So we are not left without a knowledge of God. We are left with the knowledge of God that is in the word of God. And so we can know God. Think about that. We can know the God who has revealed himself in his word. Let that, let that hit you. Let that, let that, the knowledge of that God has revealed himself, this God who created the world, let, let, let that really sink in. Because, because the more that it sinks in, into your heart and into your minds, here's what it does. You're going to worship God. The creator is going and Lord of your life as a Christian. It's going to become more prevalent in your life. In fact, in fact, some people say if you if you if you're too heavenly minded, you're going to be of no earthly good. Actually, if you're not heavenly minded enough, you're going to be of no earthly value. It's actually the opposite. I know that it's so common today to think if I'm if I'm so heavenly minded, I'll be of no earthly good. Well, how can you be of any good to anybody? Our, our culture today is telling you to celebrate yourself. To give yourself a pat on the back, to think happy thoughts, and to have your best life now. I mean, for goodness sake, you don't need to be told to congratulate yourself. You need to be told to look up to God. As Hebrews 12, 1 through 2 tells us to, to, to look to the author and finisher of your faith, that is Jesus Christ. You and I need our gaze lifted up again and again to the great glory of God, and then we can adequately see ourselves and who we are made in the image and likeness of God. I need the rescue of God through Christ alone. I need of the grace of God that, that only Christ can give and, and the indwelling presence and power of the Holy Spirit who indwells all people, all children of God, excuse me, all children of God, not all people. The Holy Spirit does not indwell all people. The Holy Spirit only indwells those who are children of God, those who are born again. And we need to, we need to set our mind, our eyes, as Colossians 3 tells us, on the Lord. He has given us a new, a new nature. He's made us new creations. In Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, 17 through 20 tells us. And so we desperately need 
to look to the Lord. Our gaze needs to be turned Godward. Now, Psalm 8 is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. On one occasion by Jesus, he entered Jerusalem in triumph on what we call Palm Sunday. And while he was in the temple area, healing the blind and the lame who came to him, the children who had observed the triumphal entry continued to praise him. Hosanna to the son of David. This made the chief priests and the teachers of the law, well, it made them very, very upset. But but Jesus replied here, referring to Psalm 8 in Matthew 21, 16, saying, Have you never read from the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise? Now, if these leaders of the people have been indignant before, they, they must have been catatonic now. They, they were really, really upset. For by identifying the praise of the children of Jerusalem with Psalm 8, Jesus not only validated their words, showing them to be proper, he was indeed the son of David, the Messiah. He also interpreted their praise as a praise not of mere men, which, which a mere son of David would be, but of, but of God. And since the psalm says that God has ordained praise for himself from children's lips, and now Jesus also placed the scribes and the teachers who resisted his claims to be the unique son of God in the category of the foe and the avenger, and thereby identifying them as God's enemies. Now the bulk of this psalm is about man. And the first thing that is asserted about man is his insignificance in the vast framework of creation. This grows out of the opening verses, for when the psalmist thinks of the glory of God exceeding the greatness of creation, and thus thinks of creation, he is struck by how small man is in, compar in comparison to the Lord. Now, we might, we might think of this in a number of ways, but, but I like to think uh, of, of this psalm growing out of David's memory of lying in the field, staring at the stars. He's He's looking at creation as he's perhaps caring for his sheep. And not many of us have ever experienced this. My, my wife grew up in southern Idaho, in rural Idaho, and, and she did. She When you go out there, as we do, we were just there recently, uh, and at night, you can see the stars. You can see the stars. Most of us live where where light from a city blocks out most of the star's light. But if you live in the country, you know how majestic the heavens really are. And this was especially true for David. In the east, the air is very clear. And those who look up to them, the stars seem to be almost overwhelming in number and to hang nearly within reach of the outstretched arms of the observer. What is man that you are mindful of him, asked David, when he recalled the star's vast array? And sometimes we experience this emotion too. True, we, we do not often have David's opportunities to lie back and wonder and reflect on heaven's greatness. But we have our scientific knowledge and know at least mathematically, mathematically at least as much or more than he does. We know that Earth, which is vast enough, is only a small planet in a relatively small solar system toward the outer edge of one of the billions of solar systems in the universe. We know something of the distances. We know that light coming to us from the most distant parts of the universe takes billions of years, supposedly, to get here. 
In fact, even within our solar system, the, the distances are great. And recently, our Voyager 2 spacecraft reached Neptune, the last of the four planets it passed and photographed on its astonishing voyage to outer space. Neptune is not even the outermost of the planets. Pluto is beyond it. But the radio waves sent back to Earth from Neptune at the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, took four hours to get here. And so a single set of communications from Earth to the spacecraft and back took us one-third of a day. How small we are, according to the vast cosmic setting. How astonishing that the God of this vast universe, the God who made it, the God who orders it, the God who up holds it should even think of us at all and even more astonishing care about us and for us and yet this is what god does and not only that not only does god think about us not only does god care for us which is what verse 4 asserts but he has crowned us verse 5 with glory and honor this means that he has given Human beings, mere specks in this vast universe, a significance and honor above everything else that he created. In fact, David makes this point in two striking ways. He first used the word glory, which he's using of God. He first used of God, of mere men. He says in verse 1, you have set your glory above the heavens. This is a glory that surpasses even the great glory and the overwhelming glory of the heavens. But then in verse 5, speaking of men and women, says in this, You crown him with glory and honor. This is an effective way of identifying man with God and of saying that he has been made in God's image, reflecting God's glory in a way other parts of the creation do not. The second way that David emphasizes man's special significance is by speaking of his rule his role as ruler over the world and its creatures. Rule is something normally ascribed to God. He is the blessed and the only ruler, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, according to 1 Timothy 6.15. And Psalm 8 says that God shared this rule with man, making him ruler over creation, particularly in respect to intelligent life here on earth. And then speaking of man in in Psalm 5, 5 through 8, he says, You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. And now in this section of the psalm, the allusions to the first chapter of Genesis are inescapable. They show that David was thoroughly acquainted with Genesis. But here's the interesting thing. When the psalm gets around to describing man specifically, it describes him as being a little lower than heavenly beings rather than a little higher than the beast. It could have been written the other way around. If man really is a mediating being as the psalmist maintains, it would have been equally accurate to have described him as slightly higher than the beast rather than is slightly lower than the angels, but it does not. It does not. And the reason that it does not, although men and women have, have been given a positional position midway between the angels and the beasts, 
it is nevertheless humanity's special privilege and special duty to look up to the angels and beyond the angels to God in whose image men and women have been made rather than downward to beasts. And the reason is that they become increasingly like God rather than increasingly beast-like in their behavior. We are living in a time today where it may seem like we are becoming, if you look out to our world today, if you watch the news, if you pay attention to what's happening in our world, it may seem like things are as bad, as bad as they could get. But, but we need to remember something, and it's pretty important. It's called common grace. In, in God's common grace, God has given even the non-Christian, doctor, lawyer, etc., the ability, gifts and talents, a brain that functions, breath to, to live, and, and they contribute to the whole of society and civilization. This is God's common grace. But the other reason that, and, and it's a big one, it's a big one why our behavior is not beast-like. Not only that we're made in the image of God, but, but also the restraining presence of the Holy Spirit. We might think that the, the evil just abounds and abounds <coughs> today and that it is really as bad as it could get. Let me tell you, without the common grace of God and the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, it would be a lot. It would be a lot worse. We are sinners by nature and by choice. We will bring destruction. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We have dignity and value and worth. So we look not to our fellow creatures. We, not, we look not to one another as made in the image and likeness of God. We look not to our animals for our happiness, our satisfaction, or any to the trees, to the sky, to the ocean, to nature. We look to the Lord. People today want to find satisfaction. They want to find hope. They want to find meaning. They want to find value. They want to find worth. The only one who can give them that is the one who created them. See, the, the creator has his design. And his design is good. It's good. And yet, sin entered the world through Adam's disobedience. We became sinners by nature and by choice. This is why we are in need of the rescue that only Christ can provide. We, we wonder when, when we see a, a person who, who is engaged in, in serial crime or serial theft, are they going to get what they deserve? They, they should get what they deserve. Why? Why do we think that? Because hardwired into every single one of us is this God-given desire for justice to be done. 
as made in the image. We serve a God who is a God of justice. And so when somebody commits a crime, we want justice to be done. When somebody hurts our family member or somebody that we love and care for, we want justice to be done. Why? Because we are made in the image and likeness of a holy, just, and perfect God. And it's also important to say that at the last day, all, whether judgment happens here and justice is meted out here, final justice will be meted out by God for all crimes, for all sin, all sin. Remember, Romans 3.23 and 6.23, all have sinned, all. That's that's every single one of us. If you think about it, all of us have broken the Ten Commandments, upon which, by the way, the whole law is is built. (laughs) Over 650 laws in the Old Testament, and they all hinge or spring out from the Ten Commandments. That's why we need to know the Ten Commandments. We should know the Ten Commandments. You see, in our world today, we are living in a time when people would rather worship their self. We are living in a culture of Romans 1. Let's just, let's just view the creature as, as the creator instead of, instead of the, the, the creature worshiping the creator. Let's have creature to creature worship. And that's the culture that we're living in today. This is why you and I, we don't have to be told to, we we need to be told and reminded to look up to the Lord, to look up to and put our trust and our hope in the Lord. We need our gaze redirected because it seems like our beast-like behavior, our sinfulness of, of, of of our Humanity of fellow humans made in the image of God is only increasing. We need to look up to the Lord. We need to grow in his grace. And the, and the fact that human beings have been made in the I- image of God and are to become increasingly like God is even clearer in Hebrew than in our English versions here. For in the Hebrew text, the word in, in verse 5 translated heavenly beings is actually Elohim, the plural word for God. In fact, this is very interesting. In some places, Elohim does not mean spirit beings, as in 1 Samuel 28, 13, where the witch of Endor says that she sees the spirits, Elohim, emerging from the ground. Psalm 82 also uses the word in this way. For this reason, and perhaps also for the sake of modesty, not wanting to say that men and women are only a little lower than God, the Septuagint translators of the Old Testament use the Greek word for angels in Psalm 8. It was this translation that the author of Hebrews picked up when he referred to the text to Jesus saying that in the incarnation, God made him a little lower than the angels for the purpose of achieving our salvation. And this translation also influenced the the NIB uh, translation in its similar rending of of Psalm 8.5. And nevertheless, the translation God is almost certainly correct as Craigie and other commentators maintain. And this is because the allusions of verses 5 through 8 are drawn from Genesis 1. 
And not only is Elohim the word exclusively used for God there in Genesis 1, but the emphasis of the chapter, so far as man is concerned, is on his being made in the image of God. In fact, Genesis 1.26 says, Then God, Elohim, said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. And in light of that chapter, there can be little doubt that David is linking men and women to God, being slightly less than him in whose image they're made. But here is the very sad thing. Although made in God's image and ordained to become like the God to whom they look, men and women have turned their backs on God. They have rebelled against law. They have broken the law of God. And since they will not look upward to God, which is their privilege and their duty, they actually look downward to the beast and so become like them. In fact, a great example here, and it's a sad one, is King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, whose story is told in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar turned his back on God, saying as he looked out over the great capital of his empire in Daniel 4.30, is, is not this the great Babylon I have built at, as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It was a classic statement of what we call today secular humanism. Describing creation as of man, by man, and for man's glory. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven saying this in Daniel 4, 31-32. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass uh, by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdom of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And so it was. And so did Nebuchadnezzar become insane. It is insanity to take the glory of God for oneself, putting oneself in the place of God, and then was driven out to live with and behave like the wild animals. I've noticed that this is the way our society regards itself. Western society has lost sight of God. It no longer sees us as, as humans made in the image of God, whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It has eliminated God from its collective conscience. When, but then, because it, it no longer looks to God to derive its sense of identity and value and worth from God, it looks in any direction that it can. It looks downward to the beast and derives its identity from the animal kingdom. This is what evolution is all about. Eliminate God and evolution is the only theory left. We are only slightly advanced beings then according to this theory. And besides, since we see ourselves as beasts, we begin to behave like beasts. Indeed, we behave worse than beasts. For we end up doing things that animals would not even dream of doing. So what did God do? We know what he does because he's done it. God sent his own son on, a, on the sentence of death in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus to save us from our willful ignorance and rebellion and to fulfill Psalms 8, Psalm 8 as we have not. And this is what the author of Hebrews uses the psalm as he does in chapter 2 of Hebrews. And he applies it to Jesus saying, that he was made a little lower than the angels in order to die for us, and that as a result, the Father has crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet, adding, in putting everything under him, God left nothing that is 
not subject to him in Hebrews 2, 7 through 8. It is a parallel statement to that great hymn of the church recorded for us by Paul in Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the fullness of that great destiny is still future, as Hebrews notes in Hebrews 2a, which says, At present we do not see everything subject to him. But although we do not see everything subject to Jesus, yet there is one thing we do see. Hebrews 2, 9 and 3.11 says this, We see Jesus now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Well, what happens when we do? The answer is obvious, right? We're not looking down to the animal kingdom. We're looking up to God, eyes on Jesus. We're looking up again by the grace of God, with the help of his grace, which has saved us, has redirected our affection. It now begins the work of once again conforming us into the image and likeness of the Lord Jesus. We end Psalm 8 where David himself ended it, crying out, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see, the more that our more that our our hearts and the more that our affections are set on Christ in the Word. Guess what's going to happen? The more that we're, our, 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 the response of our heart is, is going to be one of worship. And, and this is for the Christian, the truth. We have, uh, Colossians 1 clearly tells us that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. That means that, that we belong to a new kingdom. We, we are instead, instead of enemies seated before uh, a conqueror, we are, we are seated at the table of the king. And we are his friends. We are invited to partake of, of all the privileges and all the benefits and all, all the rights that, that are afforded to us because of our king. And this is so important because if we can get our hearts and our minds around what I just said, we will lift up our eyes, we will lift up our hearts, and we will sing praises to the Lord who has made us in his image and likeness. The, the only proper response to this is to worship. We were made in the image and likeness of God and we rebelled. We disobeyed. That disobedience made us sinners by nature and by choice. And yet God had a word in Genesis 3.15. It was the first gospel, the proto-evangelium. And yet Christ has come to fulfill that, that word given in Genesis 3.15. He had crushed the head of the serpent. He will finally and fully, when he returns, his return is imminent. We do not know the day or the hour, but we know that he is coming. And he will fully and finally and forever crush the head of the serpents and establish his kingdom fully. And all of this, all of this, it should lead us to worship. It should lead us to adoration of the God who has not only rescued us, 
not only of the God who sustains our world, not only of the God who upholds us and governs the world by the word of his power, but also that we serve a God who is soon returning. Let's pray. Lord, we, we stand amazed. We stand amazed that you came for wretches, as Newton said, like us. That you came for captives. And you, you set them free. You set us free. You, you transfer us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we, Lord, we are so thankful for your grace. And we are filled with wonder. We are filled with wonder. Lord, may, may the wonder that we have for your grace not only fill our mouth, but fill our hearts and, and redirect our eyes to, the, to you, to the author, to the finisher, to the one who upholds this world by the word of your power. Redirect our hearts, redirect our affections. Because, Lord, we, we are so prone to wander, as that great hymn says. And we feel it. We are prone to leave the God we love. Lord, forgive us for the many ways in which we are prone to wander. Fill us with the knowledge of your majesty. And may our, may our hearts and our minds be set on you. As Colossians 3 says, you have given us a new, a new nature. You have made us new creations in Christ. Open our eyes, Lord, to see, as a psalmist says, great and wonderful things in your law, in your word. Light, may you light your word before us. And may, you, may our hearts treasure your word. And keep it and obey it by the grace of God and with the indwelling presence and help of the Holy Spirit. So we thank you, Lord, for your word, which is living and active. It penetrates, it pierces our hearts. It shows us our great need of you. It redirects us away from ourselves and to the Lord God. So, Lord, help us. Help us to know Help us to know you. Help us to grow in you. And help us to look to the king, the only one who can help us, to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. May we delight in our king. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Servants of Grace podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, leave a rating on the app, and share our episode with your friends and family. If you'd like to, you can follow us on Instagram at Servants of Grace, on Twitter at Servants of Grace, or by searching Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this podcast on the front page of our website at servantsofgrace.org.